We've been in Song of Songs last week. Uh, we are doing a short series on this mysterious, complex, interesting uh, love lyric poem, and uh, it's, it's strange. Now, last week, I also told a story about when I was in grade one, and I fell in love with my enemy. And so a bit of background, uh, she, was, she read a poem, or she performed a poem, and she won and I lost. And then in year two, so grade two, I had all year to make sure that I'd be the winner. Um, so actually, as the story unfolds, uh, grade two, go through the year. I don't give it much thought. I, I'm not thinking too many romantic thoughts about uh, Natasha, but as the season approached near the end of the year where we had our final, uh, there was a poetry contest again at our school, and I was a finalist, and so was she, and we performed our poems, and I still remember my poem, at least a little bit. I was looking it up, trying to find it, um, and it, it went some, a part of it went something like this, be glad your nose is on your face, not placed upon some other place. For if it were where it is not, you would dislike your nose a lot. Imagine if your nose was sandwiched between your toes. That's all I remember. <laughs> but I remember it also went on to say something about being on your head or on your ears. And then the story concluded, be glad your nose is on your face. Um, so maybe as you were picturing, what would it be like for your nose to be sandwiched between your toes and the smell of your feet all day, every day? Um, the poems have the, the ability to transport us and uh, help us imagine things we might otherwise not imagine. And then we get to this poem, filled with its strange metaphors and similes and imagery. Um, images that, frankly, I'm not that interested in hearing at this point in my life. Some are hilarious, some are awkward. Um, when we read the song, it's easy to get lost in this strange cultural poetic devices, a classic example. Let me just give you a classic example from our text. Uh, is uh, the song, uh, chapter six, verse five. Your hair is like a flock of goats. Desde descending from Gilead, your teeth like a flock of sheep, coming up from the washing, each has its twin. Now, I can understand why that would be considered attractive, instead of having half your teeth knocked out. Um, each has its twin, not one of them is missing. This one's great. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. The, the temples on my face like halves of a pomegranate? What is even happening here? Now, we're not going to dig too deep into these cultural nuances about why Gilead or uh, why sheep, why goats, all of these things. That can be for deeper biblical study for your enjoyment. Uh, some of these images are great, um, but images that without the wisdom and maturity, um, they would be very distracting. It's no wonder that there was uh, and is that Jewish tradition that forbade men over, under the age of 30 from being allowed to read this book. Um, let's just say I'd likely not have won my poetry contest 
if this was the poem that I was giving in grade two. I feel like there would be an awkward conversation that my teacher would have with me. Uh, Trent, maybe not that poem ever. Um, so uh, it, it feels as though such poetry like this um, primarily feels as though it's reserved for a married couple uh, to read. Uh, and yet, what can we together discover from this odd book? Together as a whole community, married and unmarried, young and old. Um, there is hidden within this text um, wisdom and truth that is for all of us. Uh, and so that's where we are going to go. And I'm just trusting that the Holy Spirit weaves this text with just the spirit of what uh, the needs that are going on here amongst us as a people. Um, I'm just going to pray again just to align our hearts and mind to where we're headed. Father, you are good. You care deeply. You care for us, body, mind, and spirit. You desire for us to live whole uh, and holy lives. We thank you for this text. We, we come to it with reverence and respect. Uh, we, we are not flippant with your word. It is true and powerful. It has the power to shape and reshape our lives and this world. And so we come with the respect that it is due, and we are thankful that we get to have this time together where we come uh, before you. Amen. So today we are going to look at three points of wisdom within this whole book. Um, so when you take one passage, you can exegete that and explore it, but this is one long song. And so there are certain points throughout this song that are touch points. There's, like, there, there's these patterns that exist in the text, and I'm going to highlight a couple of those for us. Um, before that, though, let's just take a quick, I'm just going to do a quick highlight of last week, just so that we're located well when we're reading this, that the context is, is firm. So number one, we need to recognize that this book exists in the Bible. And the Bible, through its centuries, has gone through this process of becoming our sacred text, God's word that we treat with reverence. And uh, we trust that for whatever reason, a book like this, as odd as it might seem, it is in our sacred text and is therefore something for us to uh, respect and hold in front of us. So um, it has authority in our lives. Uh, the second point is that this is love poetry. It's po it has poetic devices. It has a ton of metaphor and simile placed throughout it. All sorts of hyperbole and other forms. And so poetry in its own nature is not so much about having the truth right up in front of us, but is embedded in the sides and behind and underneath, like many songs and poems even today. And then thirdly, this love song tells us something about who we are as humans um, and God's design and care for us. So just kind of framing that up, now um, we'll jump right into it. C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite authors. I have uh, the screw tape letters on audiobook on my phone that I listen to regularly. It's really well done. It's performed by John Cleese, which is always humorous to me. Um, but it's one of my favorite books, and what I love is how it, it takes us from a, a different approach where the enemy is speaking on behalf of 
his dark kingdom and his dark lord. So we have Screwtape providing guidance and counsel to Wormwood regarding how to tempt and interfere with this one Christian man. I'm going to read you this quote um, that C.S. Lewis has written. Now remember, this is being, this is Screwtape's rant against God from his dark position. God's a hedonist at heart. All those fasts and vigils and stakes and crosses are only a facade, or only like foam on the seashore. Out at sea, out in his sea, there is pleasure and more pleasure. He makes no secret of it. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Ugh! I don't think he has the least inkling of what that high and austere mystery to which we rise in the miserific vision. He's vulgar, Wormwood. He has a bourgeois mind. He has filled his world with, full of pleasures. There are things for humans to do all day long without his minding in the least. Sleeping, washing, eating, drinking, making love, playing, praying, working. Everything has to be twisted before it is of any use to us. We fight under cruel disadvantages. Nothing is naturally on our side. God is a hedonist at heart. His right hand are pleasures forevermore, and everything has to be twisted for it to be of any use to our enemy. Uh, I just love the way that he speaks of the character of God in his way. Uh, C.S. Lewis does a great job. This book testifies to a God who is interested in our deepest joy. Beautiful and delightful things have to be twisted. Um, it's not the other way around. Um, sex is something. The world, our flesh, the enemy, they have to be, it has to be twisted, it, and it has been twisted, distorted, and corrupted. At first glance, one might judge this book in a similar fashion to John Kelvin, who thought it vulgar and decent. And if we read this book from a twisted, distorted, or corrupted perspective, it reads quite vulgar. Just like passages of God's judgment in the hands of a bitter, hateful person can give power to racism, injustice, and spiritual abuse, this song, in the hands of a lustful and chauvinistic heart, can read into it and get excited about what they think this book is suggesting. So it's important for us to take a closer look. Uh, the first point of wisdom is, fa is found within a series of passages. Um, so we have Songs 2.16, Songs 6.3, Songs 7.10 uh, that are behind you. And they all speak to, I belong to my beloved and he does, has desire for me or he belongs to me. These three passages are spread throughout the entire poem, and they act as anchor points or touch points from the author to the reader, saying this is a central point. Don't get lost in the poetry of it all, in all of the drama and beauty. Along the way, we got to make sure we stop and check in again at these critical points. So what are these critical points, and what is this passage, these passages saying throughout this entire song? This is a song about mutual love and affection that is exclusive. It is a love between one man and one woman. And historic scholars believe that it is to be very, okay, let me read this carefully. 
Um, and historic scholars believe it to be very unlikely that this was an expression and demonstration of anything but a monogamous marriage. This is mutual love and affection that is exclusive. While they might openly profess their love to other people and like announce it from the rooftops and say, oh, my lover's the best ever, and he's like, oh, my beloved is precious to me, and their friends are like, this is great, love is beautiful. They might be doing that, but at the same time, they reserve their love and their intimacy just with one another. So they have their hopes that they express in anticipation of getting married. Oh, there he is over there. Isn't he so great? All of the women think he's beautiful, but he's going to be mine, right? And then you have him being like, oh, man, she's so amazing. Like, I can't even see her face because of her veil, but her temples are like pomegranates. I'm losing my mind, right? But I don't know how you... Anyway, poetry, beautiful. <laughs> but in all of this, we have a couple that is intimate and just for one another. Um, we have to see that, that in all of this, it's inside the process to and the boundaries of marriage. The delights they enjoy come from that place of commitment and mutual love. This is the only place for such, pas for such passionate intimacy to occur. When, we're, when we read these passages, images of the garden uh, in Genesis arise. In fact, there's many uh, connections to the Garden of Eden. Uh, we can see that throughout. And just as the man and the woman in the garden were naked before one another, vulnerable and exposed, yet at peace, so too are these lovers with one another. They are in vulnerability and at peace. They ex the exchange of mutual affection draws us back to that passage in Genesis 2.24, where it says, this is why a man leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Together, in this exclusive affection, the two lovers are living within this ancient mystery where two become one. And then we jump ahead into uh, the Apostle Paul has many writings in this. In 1 Corinthians 7.4, he says this, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his body, but yields it to his wife. Just a little time out. I don't know why we can't seem to hear this passage. Um, there are so many Christians that, I, that distort authority and distort the mutual love that is expressed between a man and a woman. It, sits, it says it right here. For anyone that thinks Paul is a chauvinist, that's right there, read it. He is not. He sees a mutuality. A healthy relationship is not when one person has power over another, but when they are mutually submitting to one another. Which, in Roman culture, was like the worst thing you would ever do. It was, it was culturally appropriate to seek out your own honor and to make sure that you would never be submitted by another. Um, we could have all, there's all sorts of interesting history that's connected to that. So this whole idea of mutual submission is a rejection of popular culture at that time. The one who loves ends up having less power, and we see this truth played out in its fullness in Christ himself. When God chooses to become vulnerable 
out of love, to enter into our humanity and submit himself even to death on the cross, revealing that submission to one another is part of what love is all about. This couple, as they express their mutual affection, are doing so upon a foundation that true love can only be done in willful submission. Okay, I've said that multiple times, but I really want all of us to hear that. There is mutuality here, and that is a key point of the wisdom this text is giving us. This isn't one man pursuing a woman, and she has no options here. There is mutuality. There's this beautiful phrase, my beloved is mine, and I am his. And it reminds us even more of the covenant that God himself has made with his people when he says that I will be their God and they will be my people. Throughout the Old Testament, we see this. As this woman expresses her affection for her lover, um, she is reminding us that true love is monogamous. Mutual affection necessitates submission and humility. And this kind of love is ultimately revealed to us through the self-emptying love of God in Jesus Christ. We can see that in this text. So that's our first element. Growing up, um, I remember in church there was this song, um, and there was that line, it only takes a spark to get a fire going. Do you guys know that song? Yeah, there's head nods. We're not going to sing it right now. Um, now, the song was actually talking about um, us investing in our faith lives and allowing the spark of God's like, life to grow in us and grow our faith. However, I feel like that term, you know, it only takes a spark to get the fire going, um, can connect quite closely um, to even what this text is alluding to. Um, now, if you've watched Veggie Tales, here's a you're like, which I was not expecting that one, Trent. <laughs> Very different things. If you ever watch Veggie Tales, there's Larry Boy and the Fib from Outer Space. All right, any head nods? Yeah, for those of you grown up in Christian circles. All right. So Junior, he tells a lie, and the lie turns into this fib monster that the more lies he tells, the bigger it gets, and it starts consuming things to the point where Larry Boy has to come in, but then the fib is like eating Larry Boy, and he's like, ah, there's no hope, what do we do? And then eventually, some old wise, I don't know, grape, I know not a grape, uh, that's someone else, some other person um, comes, and it's like, one person can do something about it, Junior can do something about it, and Junior's like, really? And he's like, all like, wrapped up and worried and all of this, and because basically, then all of a sudden, he's like, it's Junior, you can stop it. And then Junior's like, I did it. And he confesses. And then everyone goes, gasps, and they're like, oh. yeah, thank you for that. Um, and then the fib starts to get a little bit smaller. And then Junior says, I broke the plate. So it was all about he, someone breaking a plate. I broke the plate, and that was a lie. And then I said that Laura broke the plate, and that was a lie. I said that Lenny broke the plate, and that was a lie, too. And then Junior's like, it was me. And he's all, like, worked up. Oh, cute little Junior asparagus. I'm the one who did it. It's all my fault. And then, in that moment of confession, the fib turns into nothing. It disappears. This great power is gone. Um, this principle, well, connecting to the concept of truth and telling lies, directly ap applies to this other key point that I've been kind of hinting at, um, that the Song of Songs 
teaches throughout the entire book, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. On three separate occasions, just like that other concept, this declaration exists throughout the entire poem. Basically, this woman who is now just married stops at three different points throughout this whole poem and declares to the other women that are listening, hold up, this is important information, you need to hear this from me. And so we have these passages on the back um, uh, reminding us of this. Daughters of Jerusalem, um, and, he charge, and she charges them, do not awaken love until the right time. So what can we make of this moral admonition? What exactly does this suggest? Um, a, a scholar, um, uh, he writes commentary, Dwayne Garrett, he, he, he has this great quote. I'm just going to read it just word for word. Um, I think he says it really well, and I want us to be able to hear it. A modern Western reader might take this to mean do not become involved in sexual activity until, until you are sure that you are emotionally prepared for it. Such an interpretation would be quite out of character with the moral code of ancient Israel and the message of the song. In this context, the exhortation can only mean that they should avoid promiscuity and save their virginity for marriage. At the heart of the song, moreover, is the event of a young woman marrying the man she loves and giving up her virginity. The passion of love and the powerful emotions of the transition from virgin to sexually active woman are to be experienced with what the Old Testament calls the husband of your youth. This, uh, the woman is simply telling the younger girl or girls to wait until she finds and marries the man she loves. So I think he says that really well. And our desires are so powerful. Our sexual desires are so powerful um, that just like a, a dam with like a ton of water, if there's a crack, the pressure against that crack slowly breaks down a dam. We in our lives, we get caught up in all of this, and we in this world see this uh, time and time again in front of us. And a message like this is so appropriate today. This warning to the daughters of Jerusalem is a call to wait until marriage, to save themselves. Um, living in our Western culture, it's easy to frame this warning as a do not. Oh, one more do not from the Christians. Okay, great, thank you. All right, thanks for that. Um, another, you know, don't drink, don't smoke, don't lie, don't have sex, all these don'ts, I can't have fun, this is the worst ever. However, often, um, when people end up in that perspective, hidden inside of the do not is because there's a greater do, there's a greater yes, there's something bigger and better and more beautiful that you have to say no to. Delayed gratification is what separates humans from the animal kingdom. We have the ability to say no now because there's something better down the road, and this is definitely the case when it comes to our sexuality and comes to making love and being sexually active, there is a call in this text to wait for the right time. These stuffy rules that we might think are not stuffy, but they are a declaration of joy and fulfillment and ultimate satisfaction. Um, she and her lover 
they have this encounter. It's near the end of the whole poem, um, and she is just so excited. And then there's this moment where she's like overcome with delight. Um, this moment is so special and so powerful, so delightful, that she is compelled to tell the young women, it is worth it. Wait, wait. Waiting until the right time allows uh, your desires to be properly satisfied and fulfilled. It is worth waiting for. Her expression of love through this whole Song of Songs is more than just, uh, this pleasure is more than just the act and the act itself, but it's connected to the joy in sharing um, authentic and trusted intimacy. Um, this kind of human connection can only occur within God's design. As a man and a woman share one another within marriage, there is this covenant and promise of fidelity, support, emo emotional presence, and friendship. When passion is released within the proper place, the power of it can lead to joy, satisfaction, intimacy, and ultimately, more life. Of course, she is warning these girls to wait. She wants them to wait because the hopes that one day they too might experience the, lo the love that she is now experiencing. Picture this with me. Here's this young woman um, who's right in the middle of her honeymoon. So there's kind of the story where she's right in the middle of her honeymoon, and then she calls out from the window of the room saying, girls, wait. This is seriously worth waiting for. I do not care what you might be feeling or desiring right now. It will never be truly enjoyed until you are with the one you love, the man who loves you in return and has eyes only for you. Wait. This warning is a life-giving warning. And what's more, it is coming from a woman who's been there. In Scripture, so often the wisdom, wisdom is often shared from man to man. Proverbs, for example, is basically wisdom instructions to a young man. Um, but this book, and these verses particularly, is from a woman to younger women. It's not some cranky old man telling girls to watch out and wait, but a woman who until just recently was just like them, a virgin patiently waiting for the correct time. This is not a stuffy old rule, but a fresh and valuable plea for all of us to hear today. Men and women, we must listen to this song on behalf of ourselves, for ourselves, and for others and for our children and those who go before us. It's, as now, it's necessary now as it has always been. Third point and last point uh, connects to the first two and offers, in my mind, a good connection, a good application to us as a community of faith. What do we together do with all of this uh, information? In this song, um, there are other characters. So there are, uh, in the NIV, it refers to as friends. Um, and that can be translated in all sorts of different ways, but friends is a good um, example. They're like the choir that's like, yeah, woo, 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 this is great. You know, that every once in a while they're like, this is, we cheer for you, and then we also say these other bits, and there's this one element. Um, and if you want to turn with me uh, to Songs 8, uh, verses 8 to 12, uh, let me read this for us. So yeah, uh, verse 8, or chapter 8, verse 8. We have a little sister, and her breasts are not yet grown. We shall do for our sister, um, what shall we do for our sister on the day she is spoken for? 
If she is a wall, we will build towers of silver on her. If she is a door, we will enclose her with panels of cedar. Now, at face value, you'd be like, what am I reading? Um, <laughs> which is like the entire book. What am I reading? But here in this, in this last point, we have these friends who through the whole song have been this kind of choir, these advocates of good love and all of this. And they ask this rhetorical question because they know what they're supposed to do. What shall we do for our sister? And they answer with this poetic imagery and metaphor. So let's unpack that imagery just a little bit and then we'll tie this all together and close. Um, number one, the wall and door are both symbols of her chastity. Together they affirm her status as a virgin and seek to protect that. It's not just protecting that, I should be clear. It's protecting her and her innocence. Uh, the other point is that um, to build a tower um, on a wall or enclose a door, at first glance, sounds like they are locking her up, um, that she has become a prism or a prison. Um, but it can just as easily be seen as a defense against attack. If the castle, which represents the young girl, is under attack, then whether this siege is either hostile or even something the girl desires, these additions to the castle are meant to protect, to safeguard that which is so precious, this girl's innocence. Interestingly, the material that they are describing and speaking of, um, the, the silver for the tower as well as the cedar, these are ornamental and precious commodities in ancient Israel. Meaning, these are not things that you would just like spend and use, but they are considered precious and are tended to be reserved for beautifying and enhancing dignity. Let me say that again. Both silver and cedar tended to be reserved for beautifying and enhancing dignity. So while they are protecting her, uh, they are also revealing to us her honorable status. Garrett says that her virginity has been maintained in a way that enhances her dignity. She is not placed in a prison like, prison like a criminal. She is protected like a precious treasure. And the last point to make in this poetic image is that a group of people are concerned about maintaining her honor and her dignity. The world in which we live can be particularly aggressive and harsh to young men and to young women. Every day they face attacks that both weaken their defenses and stir within them longings and desires that, they, that are hard to fulfill and can be frustrating. This bombardment is nothing new. The enemy, enemy has been twisting God's good design for sex within marriage since the fall. This passage of scripture very clearly commissions us as God's holy people to participate in the honoring and protecting of our kids. This world will not protect their innocence and they cannot do it on their own. Together we are to ask this question today, today in our context, what shall we do for our children? This whole text, this whole story calls us to celebrate the beauty and satisfaction that comes from mutual affection uh, within marriage, mutual affection within marriage. 
as we submit to one another in mutual love, we are enacting, albeit in a small way, the very love of God that he has shown to us. Number two, we are to declare that it is worth waiting for. Let the wisdom of those who have gone before speak loudly and joyously to those not yet married. And third, recognize that the protection of those around us, especially the vulnerable, is our burden and our call. Together, God calls us to support one another. We live in a world where too much has been done wrong in the name of sex, in the name of interest, and all of that. And I'm not going to spend much time today talking about how much wrong is going on, even in our very city, in regards to sexual exploitation, the abuse of women, the abuse of children. But we, as a church, must, like these friends, build defenses and take charge of the responsibility for us to be defenders of the vulnerable. We as a church, as Renfrew Baptist Church, can be participate in building God's kingdom to be stronger and more beautiful and, and better for these hurting individuals in our world. This scripture, this text, clearly shows that it is not a power play. This woman, it says in, later in the passage, she freely gives. She says, I am a wall and I freely give meaning she has authority, she has autonomy in this situation. And while this book was written in a time that was like male-centric and male-dominated, there was still this clear moment of mutuality and the affirmation of women that they weren't just a commodity. We can see that in this text, and it is critical for us to maintain that perspective in the world we live. There's dark stuff happening in this world, and it's our call to be like these friends, to fight against this sex-saturated culture, both as individuals in our own lives and the journeys that we face day by day, what we choose to see and participate in, but also beyond ourselves, how we participate in good things that are going on in this city and around this world for God's kingdom and for the protection of the vulnerable. Hmm. I will stop there. Uh, as the band gets ready to come and play, I'm just going to pray for us. And my prayer is a couple of things. That my, first, uh, my first prayer is that we as a church would understand that we have a privilege to serve those that come, before, come after us in the protection and in the honoring of those who are young and recognizing that their vulnerability is something for us to cherish and to, to steward well, but also a prayer for us as individuals to take responsibility for our own behavior. The way, how do we participate day by day, by day in elevating um, the beauty and the rightness of sexuality in its right place and right time? Let me pray. Lord, a lot has been said, and... I just ask that you cause us to hear and remember those things that you need us to hear and remember. And that the other bits would fall to the wayside. But Lord, I, Lord, I just pray for us as individuals. Lord, that if there's any of us that, that struggle to live 
up to and live towards the high calling of, of purity and the honoring of those vulnerable, that you would deeply convict us, that you would call us out in small and, and safe ways so that we can get the help that we need, so that we can find the community necessary to support us, so that we can proudly stand beside one another and say, uh, I'm here for you, I defend your honor. I fight against the injustice that happens in your world. And Lord, as a whole church, may we stand for justice and stand against the injustice. Just as how Screwtape said, everything has to be twisted for it to be for the enemy's use. Lord, may we be participants in the untwisting of evil things, the untwisting of, of brokenness so that it can be made straight and right and true like it was in the Garden of Eden where men and women in vulnerability could be at peace with one another. Lord, may we be this kind of church together. In your name, amen. Before uh, we finish this song, uh, I was reminded how critical it is to proclaim the hope that exists. That even in this song, as we were singing, uh, we were being reminded that there is hope in the Lord. And I, I gave a message of kind of like, pushing us to live in a, in a way that can be difficult, but I also feel that it could also been triggering or reminding people of the mistakes they've made and that you might be feeling, it's too late for me, that I've missed my moment, I've missed that opportunity that this song speaks of. God is bigger than any mistake. He is greater than any screw-up we think we may have made. He is bigger than the tragedies that have happened to you or against you. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart, and he saves such that have a contrite spirit. The Lord hears us, and he has a desire to serve the afflicted, to strengthen their hearts, your hearts, and to be with those who are in need. And so if you find yourself on the other end of all of this, being like, all of this stuff felt like I'm a little too late, you need to hear that Jesus is bigger than any mistake. It's the beauty of the gospel, that we can fight towards this, that we can serve our community in the way that this song speaks. But for those of us who have been beaten up or broken down or made choices that we regret, the gospel speaks to us that there is hope, freedom, and deliverance it's never too late for us to live lives of health and purity and for us to be seen with eyes uh, that the Lord sees, with, that we are beautiful, that we are good, that we can be put together. So I just wanted to speak that uh, as we sing, sing ourselves out in this last song.